Welcome back. You're listening to The Cinema Condition with your host, filmmaker and creator of the Nerdcore Podcast Network, Raul Alejandro Mendoza, or how I prefer you guys to call me, the Nerdy Chicano. And today I am joined by a new guest as we discuss a new film this week. Uh, last week we saw Rachel Sweetland coming on the uh, on the podcast here with me in studio to talk about Interview with the Vampire, but this week we have our wonderful friend and uh, renowned fan of cinema as well, Alejandra Escutiangulo, and I hope I pronounced that correctly, but Alejandra is a big fan of cinema as well. She loves, loves, loves movies. She's a big fan, of, more to movies, she loves the theater. She loves musical theater as well. So Alejandra's uh, here to talk about Quinn Tarantino's 2009 film, Inglorious Bastards. And hello, how are you doing today, Alejandra? Hello. I'm fine. Thank you. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. So I've known Alejandra for a really long time, um, and I've never really invited her on the show. I don't know why, knowing how yeah, much... Yeah, that's true. Why? <laughs> We're gonna start this way. You're gonna start. <laughs> what's it called? They're asking me why. You know, it's just I'm. Alejandra's probably like one of the most smartest people I know when it comes to movies, and she has like so much to say about them. And not gonna lie, I I get I'm nervous right now talking to her because like, you know, I know I know a lot, but I don't think I know as much as Alejandra. Like, you guys don't understand this. At Alejandra's school, she held the film stock for, uh, I believe it was The Sound of Music, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. So, so, like... That's me. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm a cinephile. Fuck no. Uh, Alejandra is way more than a cinephile than I am. And I get nervous just, you know, talking to someone. Like, it's, it's the same nerves that I would have talking to my professors, who are my film professors. So, uh, yeah, Alejandra... I hope that after this, Alejandra can come on the main show because we have a lot of stuff that we want to talk on there. Hopefully, maybe we can get her on for the Birds of Prey review because, oh my God, I'm so excited to watch that. And oh yeah, I'm also waiting to watch it. I love that movie. I've been waiting for it for so long. Yeah, yeah. So I'm really, really excited to see that. But today we're going to talk about blast Blasters. No, Inglorious Bastards. Uh, there but, you go. <laughs> I'm sorry. I would get tongue-tied and it's a little bit of the nerves too. So... Uh, Alejandra, why, why, uh, if we want to get into this, I ask really, why did you pick this movie? Oh my God. Well, I think personally that in the case of Tarantino movies, I think Glorious Bastards has to be like on the top of all time. Like for me, it's Kill Bill Volume 1, Inglorious Bastards and Django, right? Mm -hmm. I think those three are like his top, top movies of all time, like the best ever for me at least and in the case of Glorious Bastards I chose it because it's just so different from that kind of narrative in movies like we've all seen movies about World War II about Hitler and about uh, the Holocaust and about all these things but this one is very different to the rest I think that makes it like really really special to me to watch and also it's really interesting to see what he's doing with the story because it's not like a historical drama. Mm -hmm. It's more like a fictional historical mm -hmm. drama, right? And I think that's really cool. And I think it's really interesting. And also like the characters and the acting and the camera shots and everything. I think it's just really great. Yeah. Yeah, I 100% I agree with you. 
Um, this is actually my favorite uh, Tarantino film. Uh, it is it's this one, and then uh, Django because Django holds a special place in my heart, uh, being the movie that I watched that made me realize like, oh, I want to get into this business. Like, I kind of want to make movies. Yeah. And, and then you know, Kill Bill, the whole two f- movies. I count them as one. I know people who count them as you know one and one, but no, I count them as one. So. Let's go ahead and introduce the director of Quentin Tarantino here. So, uh, he was born March 27, 1963. Don't ask me what age he would be because I'm terrible at math. Uh, <laughs> age, at, at age 15, he drops out of school and he starts to work at the Pussycat Theater, which is an adult theater over there where he, I believe, in California. So, he would start working there. But, uh, but what's it called? It wasn't really until 1992 when he, uh, he debuted with his first film, uh, Inglourious Basterds, not Inglourious Basterds, I'm so sorry, uh, Reservoir Dogs, Reservoir Dogs. Uh, he wrote, he was writing the script for Reservoir Dogs years before, but he finished the script and then he wanted to make the movie, but he didn't have, obviously he didn't have money because he was an independent filmmaker, didn't really have money for it. So, the first script, one of his first scripts that he wrote, True, True Romance, was the one that he sold off. And they made the film, and he was able to get that. The money he made from selling that script off, he was able to make a Reservoir Dogs in 92. So uh, a lot of his career has been interesting because he was offered films like Speed and Men in Black, but he left to, yeah, but he left to, uh, to Amsterdam to work on his next film, which would be, of course... Pulp Fiction. And in 1994, he releases Pulp Fiction and he gets an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. Uh, And I want to say he truly creates the Tarantino style uh, filmmaking with Pulp Fiction. Uh, But, you know, the Tarantino style does take from different directors such as, you know, Jean-Luc Godard and uh, and a lot of other filmmakers and the B-movies that he watched when he was a video store, uh, what's it called, worker. So he has been nominated for multiple Oscars, but he's never really won the Best Director Award. Uh, and I don't know if that will change on Sunday when the Oscars happen. So this episode gets re- re- recorded very, very early. So the Oscars are way after this. So don't castrate me because I don't know if he already won because I don't know. I really don't know. This is being recorded early. Um and finally, his other hits include, you know, his black exploitation film Jackie Brown, his uh, Grindhouse film Death Proof that he made with uh, what's it called in conjunction with Robert Rodriguez, who made uh, Planet Terror. He also has, of course, his 2012 film Django Unchained. Uh, he has his he has the Hateful Eight. He has the Kill Bill films as well, Volume One and Volume Two. And his most recent one is his love letter to 60s Hollywood, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that came out last year. That is our wonderful director and probably the most famous right now. Honestly, if you were to ask anybody what is the first director that comes to your mind who is into movies, they always bring up either Tarantino or probably Scorsese. But uh, Tarantino is up there. And honestly, we're here to finally talk about one of his movies. We've actually reviewed this one on the Nerdcore, on the main show. We did a whole month of Tarantino uh, before we uh, watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And we talked about this one, and oh man, I sing the praises for this movie every time. But uh, I, there's a lot of themes presented in this movie. It's really hard to pinpoint all the themes because, you know, like I say, 
Let's go. Tarantino really does take from everybody, and you know that's not really a bad thing. It's, you know, it's it's something, but uh, he really does present a lot of interesting themes, especially the. I don't know if you see this, but you know the whole idea of the femme fatale in this. It's really Shoshana. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. I think actually I want to talk about that in in the case of Inglorious Bastards, but maybe a bit more ahead. <laughs> I don't want to lose the order, but I was thinking about that. And also, I want to say that Tarantino's birthday is the same day as mine. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yes. <laughs> you share a birthday with QT. That's why. That's right. I know. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. You're not as old as QT, though, for sure. Um, no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm like maybe 30 years younger than him. So, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Tarantino... What's it called with this film? Like, like Alejandro said in the beginning, it's not it's not a historical drama. It's very much influenced by his uh, his love of the spaghetti western. Also, very much French French films as well in this one. Uh, you get a little bit of instance of uh, of appreciation of, of the American noir in this too, but mostly, but mostly it is one hundred percent his attempt to make his spaghetti western thrown in with his revisionist history in this film. Which I, I really I think it makes for for me his best movie because I think this is this is the movie where he's not usually the self indulgent Tarantino who's like kind of just making the movie and like it loses himself at one point but he's like ah you know what forget it I'm just gonna keep just making it just making it you know just kind of indulge himself a bit this is very grounded it's very much his uh, to me it is his masterpiece this is the one that he kind of perfects uh, what do, what do you think Alejandro yeah, I think it is definitely, like, his peak. Like, uh, you know, Kill Bill Volume 1 before that, it was amazing. But then Inglourious Busters, I think, is, like, the peak of his technique, like, his, the development of his work. I think it's amazing, and I think it's reached its highest point in Inglourious Busters because not only did he manage to get, like, the best actors ever, to play the, mm -hmm. the characters that he wrote, but also he managed to, I don't know, to like convey an entire story based entirely on suspense, like the thrill of the suspense and the fear. And because I think he was playing more into the, the sense of the fact that we all know what happened with the Nazis and who the Nazis were and what was going on with them. And so he just realized on the audience, like, oh, you already know. I don't have to introduce these characters to you. You already know that when you see a character with a Nazi uniform, you know what's going to happen. You know something bad, something is going to go wrong. Mm -hmm. So I think, like, that and the dialogue and the fact that the movie is mostly in uh, other languages and not in English. Yeah. I think that's amazing. Like, mm -hmm. it's really a risky move to make a Hollywood movie in other languages that are in English for the most part and only rely on subtitles. And yet, I think, it, I, I mean, I didn't have a problem with subtitles, obviously, but I think that was a really, like, like a really good power move. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, you want to watch this movie? Okay, you got to read the subtitles and you're going to get it. Don't worry about it. It's kind of what's happening, what happened last year with uh, Parasite. You know, Parasite yeah, just exactly. absolutely yeah, broke yeah. into the zeitgeist and it's like, Oh, you fucking Americans! I'm gonna make you guys go watch a movie in uh, in, in subtitles. I have no problem with it. I just wish that uh, 
I, I just wish that the titles uh, subtitles were a different color so I could see them better <laughs> when when those yeah, scenes when exactly. it's in sunlight and and they're white and I'm like ah oh, crap I can't see them for <laughs> shit. But, also, it's like I think because these also the actors are re- really familiar faces mm-hmm. like. Um, like Diane Kruger, for example, like we've seen her in a lot of other Hollywood movies, speaking English, and here she's speaking German. And Melanie Laurent, who is also in a lot of movies, speaking in English, she's in here speaking French, and I think that's pretty great. Yeah. And yeah, and in the case of Christopher Waltz, which I have to say, that guy, how, I mean, you know, how does he talk so many languages and then a you know, nobody really knew the cap- the um, the extent of his language capabilities. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. he speaks German, French, Italian, English. Like, that's incredible. I think that's amazing. Yeah. And he just really never knew that he had um, such a repertoire in terms of languages. And I think that's pretty great. And in a sense, I guess kind of what makes the movie, because... If you see, for example, like the opening scene, he's mm-hmm. in control of that scene. Like the camera only moves yes. when he moves. Mm-hmm. So the languages that he speaks are the ones that are spoken throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's mm-hmm. pretty cool. I mean, it's a really good way to like set uh, mm-hmm. like the president. Of, like, oh, this is the one you have to care about. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm... Thankful that you just brought that up because that allows us to segue into the opening shot. Like the first, the first, the first scene we see the what's it called? The Once Upon a Time in Nazi Occupied France. We that is Tarantino, absolutely. What's it called? His that's one hundred percent the style. Like you see it, the very vibrant yeah. colors, the the scenery, but it's also the very witty dialogue. It's you know just. It's it's when Tarantino when Tarantino writes the dialogue it's absolutely very it's very uh, it's it's very witty but it's very confrontational as well but it's also very like nonchalant in a way as well. Yeah, yeah, and also it's very stressful to watch. Yes. Like I said, you know, you already know what happened with the Nazis, and even yeah. though you don't know what's going on with the Jewish family and all of that, if you see Nazis arriving arriving to someone's house, and you're gonna be like, mm-hmm. oh, something's gonna go wrong. I always, always, always get chills when the camera starts to go down and you see the family under, under the, uh, uh, what's it called, under, and you see them, like, covering their mouths and stuff, and I'm like, oh yeah, I always get chills because that's when you know, oh, shit. Yeah, it's- yeah, I know. And also, I think it's really interesting that when the, the Nazis arrive, uh, the, in the music, you hear, like, for Elise playing, and that's, like, a very German thing, right? But also it's kind of soothing and sort of calm and quiet. And it's like, it's the complete opposite of what's about to happen. Like, if you hear that stuff, and it's not preparing you for the danger of like maybe a horror movie and it puts you like a slow song and then it goes to crescendo. But instead, this one is a really calm, quiet song. And I think that's a really good way to like prepare the audience for the suspense they're just about to go through. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, I just got to bring it up because it's what happens. And uh, I got to love the antagonist drinking milk. You know, Malcolm, Malcolm McDonald in uh, Clockwork Orange drinking milk. Um, the guy from, 
What's it called? Uh, Mad Max Fury Road, drinking milk. What's it called? Christoph Waltz in this one, drinking milk. So I had to bring that. That's just, I love, I, I was seeing that. I was like, ah, oh, man, here we go. Antagonist drinking <laughs> milk. Uh, I also got to bring up, you're talking about the suspense, and I think it's like that piece of music that comes at the end when he finally brings the uh, soldiers in. It's incredible piece of music. Uh, he uses a lot of music in here from Ennio Morricone, uh, you know, famous what's it called, the Italian composer, creator of the uh, wonderful score of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. My favorite score from him is actually Cinema Paradiso. Uh, that's one of my, one of his, his, my favorite score of all time is that one. Ennio Maricone is probably one of the most incredible uh, composers in, this, um, in, in, in Hollywood and in cinema in general. And when he brings that music, it's incredible in the use. He wanted Morricone to do the, compo the composing for this film, but obviously that didn't work out. He doesn't bring him until like Hateful Eight, which is funny because that's the last time he brings Morricone in too. <laughs> Because they had a falling out. But, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's really cool that he used uh, the, that um, score because it ties in with the subject of like making a spaghetti western mix mm -hmm. with like the um, Nazi occupation in France. And I think that's a really interesting concept. And also, it's a really good idea that he used those songs to also kind of step the type of movie that you're about to watch like oh this is a mixture mm -hmm. and i think that's really good that's pretty cool also yeah and throughout this whole you know just the characterization of of uh of uh i have no idea how to, to pronounce his name his name is way too hard to pronounce but christoph Waltz's character um just just hans landis because it's is a standard 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 viewer uh, Hans Landa, Hans Landa, but yeah, Hans Landa, whatever. <laughs> I'm just gonna say Hans Landa because that first part is just absolutely uh, hard. Uh, the only one, the only German term I know from back then that I'm able to, what's it called, uh, completely pronounce is Olga Bopinfua from, uh, from, but that's because of, uh, what's it called, Mine in the High Castle. <laughs> but right. this one, fuck no, I cannot pronounce this. Uh, this is tough. But I'm famous for butchering every name possible on these podcasts. So, you know, just him, his, his the power moves he has where he's like, this whole time, I, I know, I, I have a feeling this whole time they haven't been able to understand us because we've been talking interviews. They don't know English, do they? And they're like, no. And he gets up and he, just the whole, you know, toying with them, kind of like, because the whole time he's toying with him, he knows damn well there's, there's Jews in that house. Yeah, of course. And he's just kind of toying with him, kind of make it seem like he doesn't know shit. And when he's, even then, at the end, when Shoshana is running away and she, he's pointing the gun and he's like, ah, nah, I think I'm going to let you keep going because you're my little, like, you're my, you're my pet in a way. I'm, I'm, I, you're my, you're my, you're my, I'm your prey and you're my, you're, you're my prey and I'm your predator and I'm waiting. I'm, I'm going to, I just want to, I just want to enjoy the hunt. Yeah, that first, just, that whole opening scene is crazy to me. Like, the first time I watched the movie, mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't, well, I actually played it for my mom, so I wasn't watching it with her. <laughs> she was watching, and I was supposed to be doing something else. And I was, like, there in the room, in my computer, and my mom was watching, and I got, like, entirely lost in that scene. Like, I abandoned what I was doing, and I was watching the scene, because I was like, oh my god, what's gonna happen now? And then mm -hmm. the camera pans down, and you see, like, the family under the floorboard. Mm -hmm. And that, that was crazy to me. I was like, oh my god, something is gonna go very wrong right now. Like, if he even 
kill just family? Is he going to kill Lapadit and his daughters? Is he going to kill everyone? Is he not going to kill anyone? What is going to happen? I was very, very stressed. Yeah. But I think like at the end, the release is sort of, um, yes, expected, but also not so much because even though you know it's a Tarantino movie and of course it's going to be violence and a lot of blood, um, you get exactly that. But also the fact that he let Shoshana go is like, oh, wait, why did he do that? Like that gives it a little more of a twist. Like it's not just standard murder Nazi ride scene. It's more like a, um, yeah, well, it's definitely the precedent for and the base for the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like I think it, it kind of, kind of reminds me of that bit in Kill Bill Volume 1 when um, Beatrix kills Bernita and she sees the daughter and lets the daughter be and it's like oh then something's gonna happen later maybe yeah. right oh, and in yeah. this case you have like maybe we don't know and then in this case you have like that girl that he let run away was the one that sort of ended everything up in the end of the movie so it's really cool I that, what you just say it just reminds you of the meme I sent you. Remember the one with the whole like you know, the, you, what's it called like you know the the bride is better than uh than than John Wick. Oh yeah, Wick. Oh my god. He's like killed killed the girl's mom in front of her and then said pull up when you're young when you're older. Like oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Come on. Come on. Yeah, it's it's incredible what he does in this opening scene. He has there's a lot of scenes in this movie that I think that it's Carantino kind of perfecting himself. I gotta say the scene in the bar. Wow. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, oh, come on. Yeah. And yeah. I also think it, I find it very interesting that these scenes, like the opening scene, the scene at the bar, specifically the scene at the bar, are so long. They take so much screen time. And yet, you didn't really get bored of what's happening, of what's happening in the scene. Because, again, you have like this element of suspense and the camera movement that sort of helps guide you and not get bored with just like one standard conversation shot. Instead, you have like camera changes and you have like close-ups and medium shots. Mm-hmm. And you have two characters entering and moving and the blocking. And I think everything is really interesting. Like the way in the, the scene at the bar, I think <laughs> like the first moment when I, I thought, okay, this is going to go wrong is when uh, Michael Fassbender and... Uh, <laughs> I don't remember the name of the character. And Siglitz mm-hmm. and they all arrive and they see the bar is full of Nazis. And he's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, okay, you know, this is going to go wrong. This can, this can go wrong in many, many ways. And also it's not just Nazis, but also drunk Nazis. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know, maybe that's kind of harmless, but also maybe not. And then you see... Like, out of the corner of your eye, you see that there's a guy at the very, very back of the bar listening to music and reading a, a book. And he's like, wait, who is this guy? So it just keeps adding elements for you to think that, like, to make it uneasy. Like, there is something that's not right here, but I don't really know what it is. Yeah. And then, yeah, like, the, and the climatic moment of that is just... Um, this guy who doesn't know what the German tree looks like. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's just, and that's it. And it's too small. And 
it's so like maybe a little bit ridiculous. It's like really you spend all this time making it through with your bullshit story about how you were in a German movie and whatever, and then you had to blow it up like like come on, really. Well, it's- it's what makes me laugh so much with the uh, with the whole you know Gorlavi thing because you know he says he tells uh, I believe uh, what's it called uh, the other guy is like you know what is what's it called as far as I'm concerned you should actually start getting to learn Italian because you could start using it like you start getting to learn but it's out of the one who just knows nothing like like the one who knows nothing it's crazy it's a uh, it's it's that's the thing is Tarantino has a really interesting way where he kind of like blends his humor but he also really does really well uh in the sense of like creating the tension because that scene is tense in, from the beginning it's really tense <clears throat> yeah but, yes it is but and also i think mm-hmm. it kind of makes it uh, more tense because of the precedent of having aldo ask um uh, michael fassbender <laughs> about why bridget was taking them to like this bar in uh in like a basement, and then I don't know something can go wrong, but like the other guys are just like, no, nah, it's gonna be fine. Come on, whatever. Yeah. And then it do- it's not obviously. But before that, even with that scene, you already have like the idea implanted in your mind mm-hmm. that something's not quite right and something's gonna go wrong. And mm-hmm. I think that that's a really good technique of like setting up the way for what the final explosion is going to be. Yeah. Well, it's it's also because it's also just the way he frames these movies. Is his movie this movie like that shot, that over the shoulder shot with Daniel Bruhl, and he's when he does the German three, and he's like, "Gotcha, that's how I just found out." And it's nothing like it's not yeah. him getting up and being like, "Okay, no, 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 Americans come or something," right? It's just him, just there, just a, just a simple grin, and then that's it. It's like it's just those little subtle things that Tarantino does in this movie. That really like does uh, perfect the way he creates tension, but also perfects the way he kind of crescendos his scenes in a way. Uh, but you know, Aldo is just with the whole Mexican standoff, and it's like you know, this is like this is not a Mexican standoff. No, one hundred percent, it's a Mexican standoff, dude. You're pointing a gun at me, you know, and I'm gonna throw down grenades. It's one hundred percent a Mexican standoff. Uh, but it's uh, this scene as well as what's it called? Of course, just the whole stuff in the theater at the end is incredible as well. But what's it called? Uh, this this scene, it's the one that I always revisit. Like even after I finish the movie, I'll be like, oh, you know what? I just want to see this scene all over again, and I'll go back. It like you said, it always surprises me how long it is, but it doesn't feel long. It doesn't feel that long. Yeah, no, it doesn't. You yeah. kind of like get sucked in, and I feel like all the camera shots. Because sometimes you feel like you're sitting at the table with them. Mm-hmm. When they're playing the, the charades game, you kind of feel like you're with them. And then with this guy makes a three and you get that over-the-shoulder shot, you're like, oh, wait, I'm no longer with them. i kind of on the outside. And I have, I can do nothing about this. <laughs> like, this is entirely out of my hands. Now all I can do is watch how everyone gets shot to death. Pretty so, much, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a pretty good technique. Like you get your audience sucked in, and then you sort of release them into this drama and pandemonium that's going down. Mm-hmm. And I think you know that's a really a really good technique that he's playing in there. Yeah, yep, and it's one hundred percent. You know, what's he called? The style of spaghetti western in there. Uh, like, 
He has so many cowboy shots in that movie. It is crazy. Like I'm, I'm, I'm like, yeah, it's it's good. He look, he, Tarantino loves what he loves, and he'll he'll just mimic that style whenever he can. But for sure, uh, I was gonna bring up what's it called the uh, the scene that happens after when you know they're she's explaining. There's there's not many feet shots in this movie, man. Not that much. Like oh, that's true. There's yeah, like one barefoot. <laughs> Literally, like, I think one. the only one I can think of is the one with Bridget, with her heel made out of um, of the cast mm-hmm. when she's at the red carpet. I think that's the only one, and you yes. can only see her toes. That's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, in this this movie, he does absolutely nothing with the feet. He just like. The, yeah. What's it called? The scene that comes after the bar, you know, it's just, you know, she's just kind of getting the bullet out and they're just like putting her finger inside the bullet hole, which, oh man, that always makes me cringe every time. It, like, I feel, oh, I'm yeah. like, oh, 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 no, hell no, hell no. Uh, but I, I love the way he incorporates the Dutch angles in that, in that scene as well. Oh, I, I'm a big yeah. fan of the Dutch angles and when he uses them in this movie, it's incredible as well. Uh, but, I am going to go ahead and uh, check our time here because I believe we are ready for a commercial break because you all need to uh, learn about the other shows on this network, not just mine. But, yes, we are going to get go ahead and go into a commercial break right now and we're going to go ahead and come back. But when we come back, we're going to talk about the themes of, uh, of, of Inglourious Bastards. We're finally going to get into the talk of the femme fatale here because Shoshana is probably my favorite female character ever and i put her in like top 10 characters ever but she's my 100 my favorite female character in cinema she's i i love shoshana so much uh, oh, yeah i love her too she's amazing she's amazing that's why she's the cover art for the for the for this episode of course there was no other way what's it called she she has to be the the cover star for our for our episode shoshana we i i love shoshana so with that being said guys we're gonna uh, we'll Talk to you right now when we come back from commercial break, but go ahead and enjoy these these commercials of all the other shows that are on the Nerdcore Podcast Network. We'll see you in a little bit. Hey, I'm Raul Leonardo Mendoza, and this is... Jabril Newton. And we are the hosts of High Flyer Radio. Radio. And finally, pro wrestling has come back to the Nerdcore Podcast feed in the form of a show hosted by Jabril and I. And we talk about everything and anything in the pro wrestling world on Mondays at 3 p.m. Central Standard Time. Nothing's off limits. Whatever you guys want to talk about, it is from AEW to SmackDown to Raw to NXT. Nothing's off the table. We can talk about it. We're going to talk all about it. And if you can get it a day early, you should go to the www.patreon.com slash the nerdcore and pledge to the tiers on there so you can get this show and a lot of shows days early before anybody else gets to hear it. But enough talking about it. We'll go ahead and see you there at the Squared Circle. Don't tap out. Tune in. Tune in. Hey guys, this is Brad, a.k.a. Young Yoda. Raul said I had to make an ad, so that's what I'm doing. Um, it's supposed to be for Unstructured, but as you guys know, you can freaking catch me everywhere when it comes to this podcast feed. You can find me on the Nerd Cores, on Gamer Cores, on Nerdy Chicanos sometimes when I get lost. Uh, I mean, but for this particular one, I want you guys to go check out Unstructured. The Raul gave me free reign to do whatever... I want to do. I don't know what he was thinking. So go hear me talk about LeBron James and Taco Tuesday, vaping, uh, so many other freaking weird topics that uh, chimichangas, that's a good one. Uh, shout out to Deadpool. And yeah, I, I guess this is the end of the ad. So if you guys want to find me, you can find me all over the place on this uh, podcast feed. Anyways, thank you guys for listening. 
I love you all. And nerd up. Hello, 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 guys and gals, and you're listening to The Ladies of Nerdcore. I am your host, Daniela Nunez, and along with my amazing co-host, Ashley Garcia, we discuss many things like social impact, pop culture, political realms, and any controversy surrounding the nerdverse. Tune in and listen to us bi-weekly on the Nerdcore podcast feed, and we will love to chat and hear your thoughts on our wonderful show. And thank you again for listening to The Ladies of Nerdcore. Hey, everyone. My name is Raul. And I am the host of The Impaired Files. The Impaired Files is an interview show brought to you every Thursday on the Nerdcore podcast feed. And I interview people such as filmmakers, content creators on YouTube, and podcasters like Colton Geschwander. And if you want to listen to that early, a whole week early, all you got to do is go to the Patreon and pledge to the $1 tier. And if you want to listen to it with the general public, then go to Nerdcore podcast feed on anchor.fm slash the nerdcore. And the case is closed, but it's not classified. See you guys there. All right, guys, we're back. And you guys uh, heard those wonderful commercials. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy them. Uh, soon there's going to be a commercial for this show, for the live streams when we do those on the other shows. But uh, for now, just enjoy those commercials of the other shows on the network and make sure you listen to those shows on the network. <clears throat> mm. So, when you guys last heard from us, we were talking about Inglourious Bastards, and we're still here talking about the Inglourious Bastards, but we're going to go ahead and talk more insight, uh, insight on the themes of the film. And I want to get into possibly the biggest one, uh, because I want to talk about this character. Because, uh, to me, there are two shining stars in this film. Of course, it is Christoph Waltz as Hans Landa, who he does an incredible job in the film, just being, you know, just with his acting. But also... Uh, <clears throat> What's it called? Uh, Shoshana. And uh, played by, I've got her name here. I forgot. I'm sorry. Uh, Melanie Lama. Lama? Melanie Lama. Lama. Yeah. Lama. Yeah. That. Yeah. Sorry. It's just, you know, my French lessons are paying off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Of course. Don't worry. If, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I I had to I had to I had to go off with my Italian lessons when I said Ennio Morricone. So, <laughs> so hey, we're here. You can go ahead and show off the French lessons all you want. So, uh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, we do have list. We have listeners in in France, so they'll probably appreciate that a lot. Uh, so Shoshana, her she is one hundred percent the femme fatale in this film. She she, she yeah. is the one who everything happens because of her. And she's the one who causes the downfall of the Nazis in this movie, of course. Uh, so if you guys don't know, we also have to talk about this theme as well because a lot of the a lot of people who don't like this movie are always bringing up the fact that it's revisionist history. So you know she is the reason why the the Nazis uh, what's it called all die and burn and and uh, Adolf Hitler dies as well in this film because uh, because of her staging that you know that basically the the theater burning down, which is interesting because. She, this theater, this theater means a lot to her. She's she's a fan of the movies as well, but she's like, I'm willing to burn this fucking theater down, so I can kill these bastards. But because yeah. she knew the minute they found out that she was Jewish, they were gonna burn that theater down eventually. Yeah, so, of course. Mm-hmm. And also, like you know, rather than having them do something to her property, she was willing to just take it all out and take them all out, which is a pretty good idea like she knows who Briot it is you know <laughs> and I think that's that's pretty awesome like the way in which her character is built 
And also, like, I want to say something that's really interesting about the use of language. Like I mentioned earlier, uh, the fact the movie has so many languages in it mm -hmm. gives for a really interesting way of playing with words because obviously there aren't words that are um, translatable into other languages, specifically English. And there is something that happens uh, with Shoshana mm -hmm. that when she meets, um, what's his name? Oh my God, uh, Frederick Soler. When she meets him and she shows him like her ID, well, they are obviously speaking French, but also when she says goodbye to him, like the subtitles just say goodbye, right? Mm -hmm. But she's saying adieu, and in French, that's kind of like, I don't want to see you ever again. Like, mm -hmm. if you say adieu, like forever, goodbye forever, right? But then when she sees him in the cafeteria, and he's like, well, we need to talk later, and she's like, okay, And she doesn't say adieu, she says au revoir, which is like, yeah, see you later, you know, later or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that kind of shift between her not wanting to see him ever again and then sort of suggesting that they're going to see each other again is kind of interesting. Like, that's, I don't, I don't really know yet what to, make, uh, what to make out of that, but I think that she sort of, Feel like she was already planning on doing something to the Nazis in the moment she found out that he was um, sort of popular and famous amongst them. And I think that's really interesting that you can kind of see the moment in which she's starting to manufacture this idea in her mind and then everything just comes to an end when the, uh, Goebbels and the other people visit the, the cinema and they decide they're gonna do the premiere of the movie in there. And then she just already knows because in the process, well, when she was showing the place to the Nazis and everything, you don't see much of her until they leave. And then she comes back and she tells uh, Marcel, she's like, you know, I'm gonna burn this place down. And he's like, what? <laughs> so it, it kind of seems like it came out of nowhere, but it really didn't. No, I, I I agree 100%. He does that. That's what I find so interesting when it comes to language in this film. Because he's able to plant those little, little, little seeds, right? You know, it's just those little subtle things. And it's also just the way that, uh, that Laurent just completely uh, approaches the character. Just the body language. Uh, you know, just how she, how, just hold, hold the, the specific way she's holding that cigarette at that little, at that, at that cafeteria. It is. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. It's, it's just her body language. It, it makes her like, for me, the perfect femme fatale because she she's she she's scared. She's scared of what's gonna happen. That's why when when Hans Landa leaves after eating the 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 strudel, she she yeah. she kind of lets out a, a sigh of despair and kind of cry, cries a bit. But still, at the end, in in <clears throat> in her head, she still wants to find a way to kill this motherfucker. Yeah. Also, like I think it's. It helps the fact that you didn't really see what happened to her when after she escaped and then how she got the cinema and everything because I understand that Tarantino did include a bit of that in the original screenplay and then just cut those scenes out. But I think that the fact that you don't see what happened to her sort of helped to make her a little more mysterious and a little more, um, I don't know, like a sort of like an obscure 
thing for not only for the Nazis but also for the audience. Like you don't really know what happened to her. You just know that her name is Shana Dreyfus, and then she changed her name, and now she owns cinema, and that's about it. And the Nazis just know that she owns the cinema, and that's mm -hmm. it. So you kind of have like that um, uh, lack of knowledge that sort of leads you to think that she's purely driven by her, um, I don't know, like sort of her desire for revenge. But I think there's way more to that. And that's what the opening scene adds to the story. It's like they killed her entire family. Mm -hmm. She saw them die right there. And she was, for a reason, the only survivor out of all of them. So, you know, got to make something out of that. Like, it's not like Landa, like, uh, forgave her and let her run away out of uh, compassion or piety. It wasn't that. It was like just the, the thrill of keeping the hunt going. Mm -hmm. And so she's like, okay, well, that's, this is what you wanted and I'm going to end it. And I think that that makes a really, really interesting character out of her. Yeah, it makes an interesting character out of her. And it also 100%, 100%, what's it called, reinforces the idea of, uh, you know, the Nazis not having humanity at all. And that's why, you know, uh, Aldo, when he's like, you know, we're not here to talk humanity into these motherfuckers. Like, they ain't got humanity. We're here to kill these motherfuckers and we're here to get them out. And what's it called? It's, it's, re it's, it's cathartic in a way that Tarantino allows the character who suffered the most through her, through, through these, through these uh, vile pieces of shit, shits, to be the one to deliver the final blow and kill him. You know, she, yeah. she, didn't, she didn't have to uh, kill, kill uh, Hitler. She had to kill the regime, you know, the regime. That yeah, was yeah, what, yeah. That's what meant more to her, you know, because she knew that. Also, mm -hmm. Yeah, like about, about the subject of humanity, I think it's really important because obviously we know, like it's been established that Nazis don't have humanity. But when uh, Frederick Teller gets into the projection room and she will shot him, uh, she goes to check on him. Yeah. And that was something that really confused me at first, because I was like, why, why are you doing that? Because she also looks kind of, um, I don't know, she has a look on her face that kind of sees like, okay, I don't like you, but also if you're like agonizing or something, I want to see what I'm going to do after that. Like, she's not shooting to kill, she just shot him to like get him away from her. And then that's kind of like, I guess that last trace of humanity that she didn't show all along, all throughout, mm -hmm. is kind of coming out of there. And that's what gets her killed, which I think is, I don't know, it's really, it's a really strong moment. It's a really yeah. tough moment. It's a really tough scene to watch for me because I, I love her so much. <laughs> and I was like, I was watching it and the slow motion and the music and just the blood. And it's so, it's so good. But also, I was like, no, I was devastated. I felt so sad about that bit. And I was like, yeah. oh, my God, come on, don't do this to me. But, you know, I guess it had to happen. Yeah, it's because in a way, she's losing one more member from her audience because she she wants she wants him she she didn't want to be the one to kill him like she wanted him to burn in that fucking fire along with them you know yeah but it's also her kind of like shit i just fucking actually like actually directly i directly just killed a man like yeah like, yeah, yeah I, I i i crossed the line that you know that i i didn't want to cross 
I'd rather him die by the burning of the, of the, of the theater because I at least did that to the theater itself. I didn't directly kill someone. So it's yeah, really interesting. It kind of follows like that same example, that same line of Aldo saying like, oh, when Nazis take off their uniform, you don't know that they're Nazis. So for Shoshana, and when she discusses with with Salak, and he's like, I'm more than my uniform. And she's like, to me, you're not more than your uniform. And then she, I mean, after all, yeah, creepy and sucky and weird as he was, and a Nazi also, uh, I guess Shoshana kind of had a little bit of, um, I don't know, maybe like an acquaintance type of attachment to him because she had seen him and he was like a, a frequent client in cinema and everything. Mm -hmm. And to her, if he represented the Nazis, then he had to, like you said, he had to die with the rest of them, like in, not in a particular and one-on-one -on -one type of way. And in the end, it was that one-on-one -on -one type of way that she wanted to avoid. Because yeah. in that sense, the Nazis that were uh, persecuting Jewish people, They were just like like a bunch of powerful um, uh, a group of people that were chasing like the most vulnerable type of group, and then it was like a power imbalance sort of in there. But in the moment in which both Soler and herself are together in the projection room, they are sort of just kind of equal in a way. Mm -hmm. Which which is which is really surprising because. Usually, when the femme fatale is done in film, uh, what's it called? It's really it's 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 one hundred percent the fatal woman. Like she has absolutely no care in the world, and no care in the world for the people that she's gonna hurt. Really, just brings about the, the the downfall. But also doesn't really have that much of like moral ambiguity to her. But in this one, in this one, the yeah. femme fatale is different. It's very different, which is I. Obviously, it's the cinephile in, in Tarantino trying to make something different using this, you know, using such a trope as the femme fatale. But <clears throat> it's also really, uh, it's really what's it called? Uh, just putting her in this type of story, in this type of uh, what's it called? The revisionist history. Yeah, yeah. And also, thing like that bit is kind of reflected in the scene when she's getting ready for the premiere. Mm -hmm. And you hear like this music, and you see her making like red lines on her face, which I think is a really cool scene. But mm -hmm. also, she's wearing like this little veil thing coming out of her hat, and that's kind of like the mask that she's putting on. Like, yeah, I'm tough and I'm ready and everything. And then she walks out and she sees Marcel, and she takes off that thing and she kisses him. Like she's really nervous. She's freaking out. Oh yeah, of <laughs> and, course. Yeah. And she she's with him, and can, I feel like Marcel is kind of like this character of uh, that he's just her only support at this point, because you have to really trust somebody yeah. to tell him that you're planning to kill Hitler and the whole of his uh, of his partners, right? So mm -hmm. it seems like at that moment she starts abandoning that character that she builds to live her life like she had to build like a core on on herself to protect to be protected from an environment surrounded by Nazis and then in the only moment in which she can be truly herself as she is a person is when she's with Marcel and I think that that's pretty 
super smart way of showing and also kind of introducing the fact that she, yeah, she's tough. She has to be because she's made it this far. She is smart, but also she's scared. Like she, she's absolutely terrified. So, you know, yeah. Yeah, and I'm I, I'm really I love Marcel. I think Marcel's a very sweet character, uh, but it's yeah. also something in this film that makes you realize like that's that's where the heartbreak in this movie is. You know, it's not just it's it's it is of course the family being taken away from her, but the fact that she'll never actually be able to publicly be in love with Marcel and have a life with him because of obviously the Nazis were fucking racist as shit, like really, really, really like bad. Like, you know, she could never be publicly... Like, they didn't even want him to be around during the screening because he's black. Yeah, and, exactly. Because not only did they take her family away, her family from her, he also took the chance of, of being with someone she obviously really, really, really cares for. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Also, <laughs> to bring this up, what's it called? Just one way he's able to get Sam Jackson here. Uh, what's it called? Uh, narrating oh, yeah. the movie. <laughs> yeah, of course he had to. Come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's he's like, are, are you sure I can't play Marcel? He's like, no, no, you really can't. I already got somebody, Sam. But do you want to narrate the movie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was really unexpected. Like I was watching the movie, mm -hmm. and I, I listened to the narration, and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. And then I saw, like, in the credits, like, Samuel Jackson. And I was like, oh, of course. He had to be. Come on. Of course, of course. he had to be. And it's a really cool moment that he came yeah. in to narrate. And to sort of break the, the fourth wall, maybe, in a way, of introducing an external, like, a parenthesis in the narration to explain, like, an ex exposition bit to explain how flammable nitrate films are. And I think that's really cool. Like, if you had Shoshana tell Marcel, like, oh, these movies are very flammable. Like, that would have been really lazy. But I think, yeah. like, the parenthesis in there is really uh, a smart way of putting in something that is necessary for the audience to understand. And I also have really cool shots of, like, the film burning, which I think is a pretty fun way. Like, me, yeah. <laughs> like, me, that I've been working with film and nitrate film for a while. Yeah. Is cool to watch like oh yeah that can obviously like 100% happen and I think that's really cool like if, if you didn't have that uh, sort of knowledge that film like just how flammable these films are then you're gonna see and you're gonna think uh this is kind of unrealistic like how can you blow up an entire cinema with just film and like well like this and there you go you can have it yeah there's also a couple of other people who are uncredited in this movie but they are obviously in this one what's it called Harvey Cattell He's the voice of the OSS commander. Uh, Bella B is an is an usher, uh, and then Tarantino. He is an American soldier in soldier in American nation's pride, but he's also one of the scout Nazis. Uh, yeah, so that's where he makes his cameo. What's uh, called? I don't know how he said. Hey, yeah, you know what? We need another scout Nazi. Yeah, go ahead and let me do it, dude. But uh, it's his. I just love. It. And of course, I cannot let I cannot let us go into the next scene without bringing up the whole my my favorite scene, you know, just the whole Gorlami one. It's like, oh my god, that scene is so hilarious. Yeah, like it's still suspenseful, but it is very very funny. It's funny because you also like 
he's fucking with them so hard. Like, he yeah. is trolling these guys so hard. But at the same time, it's so tense because you're like, oh, my God, is this where it is? Is this? And then, you know, the part that comes after with Shoshana is with, uh, with, with Hans Landa in the room. And she's, like, crying. And she thinks, like, it's about to happen. Like, he found me out. And he's like, okay, that moment, it's like, oh, crap. He was just changing the, 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 the shoe. And then, boom, he goes. That's the bridges, right? Yeah. And then, he, boom, goes, goes to choke her out. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, let's go ahead and get into the last theme, and I got to talk about the uh, the revisionist history. So yeah, peop- so I I list I listened to a bunch of uh, what's it called the uh, analysis of this film before we they did this and before I finished rewatching the film, so that way I could get you know a feel for what other people were talking about. A lot of people said that they love this movie up until the point where it does its revisionist history. He goes, uh, some people found it very disrespectful, some people found it to be very self-indulgent even though i don't believe it is self-indulgent i think that i think revisionist history is interesting uh you know shows like man in the high castle are really really interesting to me i just haven't finished it uh because you know it's always in the back of our mind it's always the what would have happened if this didn't happen you know what would have happened if the civil war never happened in america what would have yeah. happened if the spanish ruled for a bit and for for longer than they did in, uh, in mexico or like you know the famous one what would have happened if the nazis you know fell fell earlier yeah. than they thought than they than they did uh what do you think about that when people say that the that the revisionist history is kind of self-indulgent or very uh disrespectful in this movie mm, okay well i think that um i guess it kind of also builds up from the beginning of the movie because you have the nazis giving their own narrative of like oh the Jewish people are like this, Jewish people are like that, and they are kind of just like spitting their alternative facts out there to the other characters. And then uh, when they are watching Nation's Pride, you can see like this parade of a Nazi killing other soldiers, and it's like, yeah, that's so good, and they are so moved. But also, the movie is like, I think it's unnecessarily violent, like, it makes no sense other than to just sort of feed into their fantasy. And then I guess that scene in the cinema also has that element of unnecessary violence for the audience because you have a fire and you have bombs. You have these guys coming in with like assault rifles to shot people even though they are going to burn and explode anyway. So there's like three different sources of ways of killing somebody just to make sure that they're dead but also you get to see it all so you have like all these uh like violence on top of more violence for the audience to have a cathartic feeling so you can hide you you have like these all of these steps from the beginning if the nazis have their alternate facts then Mm -hmm. the bastards and shoshana and everyone gets the chance to have also their little alternate facts in this revision of history. Mm-hmm. Because obviously Hitler didn't die in the cinema, but if the Jewish people were this and that that they were saying, uh, Jewish people were, then Hitler can't get to die in a cinema, shot in a fire, and then blown away by a bomb. So, you know, I don't think it's really self-indulgent. I think it's just more like an attempt of trying to balance 
Uh, the power dynamic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you 100%. Uh, I, I think it's, I think probably the most cathartic moment is just that cinema burning, but it's also, you know, seeing Hitler get shot like so many times. Yeah. You're like, you're like, fuck yeah, keep going. Let, let the scene keep going. I want to see it more. I want to see it again, 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 and again. And, uh, you, but you're just knowing because you're, you're being shown these Nazis, uh, you know, basically what's it called? Uh, react to their inhumanity and they're loving it. But then you see that yeah. same that same stuff being done to Hitler, and you're like, fuck yeah. Oh, yeah, just keep it going. Just keep it going. Yeah, keep shooting him. That. Keep shooting him. Yeah. And it, 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 I, I don't think it's self-indulgent. I think I think a lot of his other movies are more self-indulgent than, than this. I think that, like I say, I think this balances itself out really well. Uh, the revisionist history is just it's just a, an aspect of the film that I think that it's it makes for an interesting story. Uh, but it's nothing beyond that. It's, it's it shouldn't it shouldn't be seen as nothing else beyond that. I think it's just Tarantino trying to, uh, like you say, balance the power dynamics and really bring a different story. Because what's the point of Tarantino making another World War II movie? Like everybody else has done it, right? What's the yeah. point? He wants to bring his different style into it, and he wants to what's it called? Do something uh, different with it. He wants to bring those aspects of the French films because because French films that he loved from Godard. Like of course the bastards are one hundred percent. They are the guys from uh, a Band of Outsiders, uh, Le Bas de Pas, uh, 100%. Oh, yeah. they're, they're them. They're them. Shoshana is the femme, femme, the femme fatale, but he also brings his love of the West, the spaghetti Western by making the style like that. So, of course, he's going to make it different, and he doesn't want to make something that's already been made before, even though it's, yeah. you know, he does pretty much take from everybody. So, yeah, yeah. like, uh, something that a friend of mine pointed out a while ago is that. In the beginning of the movie, Shoshana doesn't understand English because that's why Hans Landa wanted to speak in English. But then when she made a little um, movie for the, to put it into the uh, nation's private, she's speaking in English. So, you know, maybe she did learn it along the way and then sort of realized, like, maybe something could have been done in the beginning. Uh, to sort of save herself and save her family, but then nothing happened. So now she's kind of catching up with the ways in which the Nazis are playing their tactics to, you know, to hurt Jewish people. So I feel like she just decided she wanted to learn English mm-hmm. to sort of little a little bit less um, in the dark on the dark side uh, and to sort of uh, I don't know like give them one less way of fucking up with her. And I think that's really, that's also really interesting. It's really smart, even though you don't see the process of her learning, but then you know that she learned it. And she used it to tell them that they were going to die. So that's Mm -hmm. pretty awesome. It's also a really huge power move from her. Yep. Just one, it's just Anna herself is just a huge power move. Just her character in general. She's a fucking, she, I'm telling you, like, she is 100% one of my favorite uh, characters of all time, but she is my favorite female character ever in a movie. She's the total badass. She is, uh, what's it called? Uh, uh, the, the baddest woman ever. Like, just, incredible she is one of my favorite characters ever she's just she's just, she's shoshana and she's she's amazing so yeah same love her so much love her so much yeah i guess this really does fi- finish it off here we're, we're we're done here we really talked about this movie for a whole ass hour wow 
Yeah. I've loved having you on, but we've got to get you on the hot seat next. This is it. What I told you I was going to have to make you do. So uh, you guys could obviously go watch uh, Glorious Bastards for yourself. I don't think we really, you know, spoiled all that much, but we probably did. But if you are listening to this and you've never seen this movie, you've already done fucked up from the beginning. So, you know, whatever. Yeah. It's been out for 10 years, people. Yeah, it's been out for 10 years. Come on, if you haven't watched it. Yeah. I'm, it's not your fault. Yeah, it's, I'm not here spoiling Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, okay? I'm, I'm spoiling Glorious Bastards. So go and watch yeah. it, guys. Also, just you know, make sure that you guys keep listening to the stuff here. But we're gonna finally get into our our uh, our wonderful uh, final segment here with the great uh, Alejandra. Alejandra, you have two movies. You need to recommend a movie, and you also need to call dibs on a movie before for season two. Yes. Okay. So for my recommended movie, I pick. Dancer in the Dark by Lars von Trier. Ooh, yes. Musical movie, but it's not the kind of musical that most people are used to. Uh, it's devastating, heartbreaking, depressing, and amazing. And Bjork was in it. And what more can you ask for? She was amazing in it. I love that movie. And the movie that I'm calling Dibs for next time, I know it hasn't come out yet, but I have to. Is in the Heights by John M. Chu. Yeah, wait, in the Heights by John M. Chu. Oh, wow. Yeah. Of course. When it comes out, I'm sure I'm gonna have a lot to say about it, so I'm gonna come here and oh. do it. Wow. Okay, you really went for it. Damn. Okay. Yeah. Let's let's do it. That it will be. Uh, what's it called? Uh, Andres' pick for season two of the movie of uh, the Cinema Condition. Hopefully, the we we'll start season two. When the movie comes out, so uh, I don't. Uh, by the way, guys, like if you guys have not noticed, this, these episodes are now coming out weekly, as opposed to the first five coming out bi-weekly. That is because what's it called? I obviously have more episodes in the bag now. I can actually upload them more accordingly to how they're supposed to be coming out. But when we reach the end of season one, which is of course you already know, I already told you guys the first, the end of season one is 2001: A Space Odyssey with uh, Patrick, my friend Patrick. We're going to talk about that movie for the, for the season finale. After episode 30, we're going to have a, like, I want to say like a two-month or a three-month period off, and then we'll come back for season two. And obviously, Alejandra will be in it because she already claimed her film. So, Alejandra can be, uh, what's it called, uh, found anywhere on the internet. I don't know if she wants to put it out there. Where do you want to, where, where do you want to tell the people to find you? Um, well, mostly on Twitter and Instagram, I guess. Uh, my Twitter is Ale, slash down, call me pizza. I guess I'm gonna have to send you the names so you can put it on the description or something because mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to spell it and I don't want to. And they're the same in both places. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I got you. I, I can say it right here. I already got it up here. Oh, thank you. Great. Yeah. Of course, come on. You know, I you know, I always mispronounce it though. It's 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 tough. <laughs> like, what's it called? I'm always saying I got me Like, no, like, damn it, I'm not saying it right. But I got you. I got you. Don't worry. All right, um, all right. Yeah, to be honest with you, I don't really know how to say it either. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Alejandra can be found on Twitter and Instagram. Ale A L E underscore. Call me Bedza. Yeah. C A L L M E P E 
Z-Z-A. Ale underscore, yep. call me Pedza. So. That's it. All right. Okay, we have ourselves a uh, alarm going off here in my room. Well, that. Uh, that's never happened. So uh, <laughs> that was really odd. I don't know why that just happened. But uh, this has been The Cinema Condition. I want to thank you all so much for listening. And obviously, in the next one, you'll get to hear another movie from a different guest. But, my friends, it's been wonderful talking with Alejandra. She is amazing. She is an incredible, credible, knowledgeable person. And I can't wait to have her back on because I think she did amazing. She, She's a, an incredible uh, talent. She's natural on this microphone. So, I can't wait to bring her back. So, with that being said, I will catch you on next week for the next movie. I believe next week is Akira Kurosawa's Ikiru. So that will be, um, oh, uh, that movie makes me cry every time I watch it. So, and that'll be with Mr. Brad Simmons. So with that being said, my friends, it's been a wonderful time. And I don't have an outro yet, but I guess just something about watching a movie. Watch a movie, guys. Watch watch Alejandro's <laughs> recommendation because it's an amazing movie. Yeah, what's your recommendation? He's going to make you cry. <laughs> See you guys <laughs> later.